Welcome to the Faith for My Generation podcast, where our vision is to shake and shape a generation with the power of God's Word. We're on one mission, to raise up a generation of powerful believers through the relevant teaching of God's Word. I'm so thankful that you're here today. I'm your host, AJ. Let's get into the episode. This is your wake-up call. Wake-up call 039, Godly Sorrow. Wake up call 039, Godly Sorrow. Hey, I pray that you're having a wonderful start to your day. If you're listening to this in the morning, of course, we release these every Monday morning. If you're listening later to the day, I pray you're still having a, a good day. I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at a couple verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for our wake up call today. Maybe you've heard that phrase, Godly Sorrow. And that's what I want to look at is a particular verse that shows us what true godly sorrow does in our life, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and is, is godly sorrow something that we should experience? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 8, is where I want to begin. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. This is his second letter that he's written to them. The first letter he writes, he writes very blunt, very boldly, straightforward. He tells the church there in Corinth, he says, look, you guys got some problems going on. There's some things that you're doing that shouldn't be done. Uh, one point in case, for 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, there's a man having an affair with his stepmother. That's a no-no. <laughs> <laughs> Any sexual relationship outside of marriage, God-ordained marriage between one man, one woman, that's a no-no, right? But definitely that one, that's, that's, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, there's an abuse, I guess you might say, or, or indecent order of spiritual gifts. Though they're operating in gifts of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, doing it out of order and, and without proper reason and understanding. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 11 they're not properly administering communion. People are showing up for communion like it's just a dinner time, just whatever, just show up, eat, drink, especially some of the more well-off people, the rich people. And then when the poor people who come, who come to worship in communion, there's nothing left for them because they've all basically just had a good time of meeting and fellowship when that's not the purpose of communion to begin with, but rather of something of remembrance. So there's a couple things going on. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, he tells them what real love is. And he, correct, he gives them some understanding on resurrection and the truth that Christ has been resurrected from the, from the grave. And because Jesus is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, that changes everything. So 1 Corinthians is a, is a letter full of correction. Instruction, but rebuke, correction. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this point several times. He said, you know, I had to write to you very forcefully, very boldly, very straightforward, just straight shooting right down to the point. You know, let's get rid of all the complimentaries and the uh, opening statements and everything, and, and let's just go straight to the point. Here, here's what needs to happen and what needs to be done. Well, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians we see Paul says, you know what? I'm really thankful that I did that because, chapter 7, it produced godly sorrow in your heart. Now, we pick up here, we see that this church, this body of believers, what is a church? A, a group of believers, a body of believers. 
and this was a huge body of believers here in Corinth, they as a whole, as a church, repented. They changed. Repentance means to make a change. They made a change. They heard the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul, given to him by the Holy Spirit. They heard it. They received it. They received the rebuke. They received the correction. They received the instruction, and they changed. Now, why did that happen? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Verse 9, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Verse 12, therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So a couple things we see taking place here. Verse 8, Paul said, you know, I wrote this letter and I'm not sorry that I wrote 1 Corinthians the way I wrote it. He's, and then he makes the point, though I, I, don't, I don't regret it though I did regret it. You might think, well, wait a minute. Is he being contradictory? No, understand what he's saying. He's saying in light of the fact that you all repented and changed, I don't regret the fact that I wrote the letter, letter to you, 1 Corinthians. Even though at the time when I wrote it and sent it to you, I had regret in my heart because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know... If when you received this letter of rebuke and correction, how you were going to receive it. And when I, when I sent this to you, I was a little, you know, oh, how are they going to take this? Exactly what's going to take place when they hear this? Are they going to sorrow to the point and, and get offended, if you will, and just leave and just give up on God and just turn from the work of truth and just forsake the things of God? You know, maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe you've been in a situation where you had to just be forward, up front with someone. You had to lay down the truth. You knew there was really not a good way, if you will, to, to say what needed to be said. It's going to ruffle some feathers. It's going to rock the boat. It's going to make some people upset, but the truth needs to be said because it's the truth. And you kind of have that uneasiness in your gut when you're about to tell them and you're about to talk to a person or people. And you're like, I don't know what's about to go down. Uh, you know, I'm <clears throat> a little anxious here. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I need to speak the truth. And we're going to let the chips fall where they do. Uh, we're going to let 
the dominoes fall over. You know, we're, we're going to tip the scale and see what happens. And whatever happens, happens. It's kind of where Paul's at. But he's saying, you know what? Now that I see that you repented, that you changed, I'm, I'm, I don't regret that I wrote it. Because he said, you weren't sorry. You weren't, and I, and I wasn't happy that you were sorrowful just for the sake of being sorrowful. I wasn't trying to rebuke you or correct you just to make you feel bad. There, there's no point in me just trying to make you feel bad. There's no product, uh, productivity or profit. There's nothing good about just me just making you feel bad. But what was a blessing is when you sorrowed, verse 9, you did it in a godly manner. So what is godly sorrow? Godly sorrow is when we receive correction, a rebuke, when we get a check in our spirit, when we realize we've done the wrong, we're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And we say, you know what? That's not right. I shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. And then you change. You ask for forgiveness. You say, Lord, please forgive me. That was wrong. And I don't want to do that again. And by your power and by your grace, I believe you'll help me not fall in that same trap again. Because I'm sorry. And I want to change. That's godly sorrow. That's real repentance. That's a real change. And, and in fact, I want us to go to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to look at two examples in this wake-up call. We're going to look at an example of godly sorrow. And then, yeah, you guessed it, an example of ungodly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to read actually this whole chapter. It's not a long chapter. It's going to give you uh, an understanding of everything that's going on. Of course, Jonah, uh, some say it's uh, the story itself is a little bit fishy. <laughs> but Sorry, forgive me. Uh, it's I'm I'm a dad, so I'm required to make at least one dad joke per hour, and I dare say that's probably one of the best dad jokes I have. Which means that they're not very good; they only get worse from here. <laughs> but of course, Jonah is the story of the prophet of Israel named Jonah, and he's a real prophet. Uh, we actually see him in one other instance where he goes and speaks in Second Kings. Chapter 14, verse 25, he goes and speaks to an evil king in Israel. Uh, it's interesting, when he speaks to this evil king in Israel, this king repents and changes. Well, here we are, we see Jonah, and he's been given a commission from God, not to go to his own people this time, but rather to go to a place called Nineveh. The Israelites in Nineveh, the Ninevites, they're enemies the Ninevites are harsh people. They're wicked. They're extremely, extremely violent people. And they're living a life. Their, their city is extremely wicked to the point where Jonah 1-2, it says that the, the cry in their city is, is wicked and it's extremely great. It's, it's basically God saying it's so wicked that I've heard the cry of it. You might think, well, God knows everything. But it's interesting, the language that God uses, especially in the Old Testament, uh, you know, with Abraham, G Genesis chapter 18, before he judges Sodom and Gomorrah for their, for their sin, 
He says, you know, I've heard the cry of the sin in this city, and I've come down to see it myself. Same thing with Nineveh. I heard this cry of Nineveh, and it's great. I'm hearing reports of how terrible its wickedness is. And so as God always does, before God judges, he always sends his word to correct, to produce godly sorrow, that it may produce repentance. Because unless people repent, judgment must come. God is holy. He is just. And it would be against his nature to forgive without first there being repentance or a change of heart. And so God sends a prophet. God always sends his word. And God sent Jonah. Now, of course, you know, if you don't know the story, go read Jonah. Just a couple chapters. It's a good read. Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh to begin with, does he? No, he goes the complete opposite direction. Tarshish. The exact opposite direction of Nineveh. How convenient. Well, of course, he's on a ship out in sea trying to run from God. And he finds out that's a bad plan. Maybe you've run from God. That's a bad plan, isn't it? It never works out. You can't run fast enough. (laughs) God sends this great fish. And think about it. This is important. I just heard this the other day. And I don't remember who it was from, so I can't give proper credit. Uh, So I'm not just trying to pass something off as my own. But I heard a minister say this. Jonah, even though he was an Israelite of the chosen in the Old Testament, of the chosen people of God, he had less protection being out of the will of God than the heathen sailors that was on the ship with him. The sailors that were on the ship with him, they were crying out to their gods. And he and they tell Jonah, hey, won't you pray to your God too? We need some help. There's a huge storm. We're going to be destroyed. Just pray. We're praying to our gods. If you've got a God, pray to your God. They don't believe in Jehovah, the one true God. Yet they're not destroyed. They're not thrown off the, the ship. They're not swallowed up by a fish. But Jonah was. The absolute most dangerous place to be is outside the will of God. The absolute most dangerous place to be is outside of the will of God. But the absolute most safe and blessed place to be is the will of God. When you're smack dab in the middle of the will of God, you're blessed and you're safe. Well, so Jonah, eventually he repents. He gets spit out of this fish. Can you imagine how he must have smelled? Covered in fish vomit. (laughs) So he shows up to Nineveh. I don't know if he bathed between being vomited out of the fish and coming to Nineveh. But if you show up, one thing, if you're a prophet with the anointing of God, that's one thing. It's another to be anointed of God as a prophet with a word from God and covered in fish vomit you will certainly be set apart and a spectacle (laughs) to the people. So Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in its extent. It took three days to walk from one end to the other. Verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, 
Then he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, lest neither man nor beast nor herd or flock taste anything, do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth Cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may perish? Verse 10, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster and he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Verse, you may have heard my daughter. She just, just ran by the room. So you, you may have, she was saying RAR, which is a particular song she loves to listen to. It's a vacation Bible school song that uh, we found by happen, just by chance on YouTube. And it's got a lion that roars. So if you heard her in the background, RAR, that's what she's asking for. So here we have Jonah. He proclaims this word from God to Nineveh. 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believe the word from God, and they change. They have godly sorrow. They hear the word, and they repent to the point to where they proclaim a fast. They cry out to God. They, no one, child, woman, man, livestock, no one's eating. Can you imagine the absolute cry going on in this city? Hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of heads of livestock, animals, crying out in hunger. These animals, babies, they don't know why they're hungry. They're just crying out. Babies just cry when they're hungry. But they're crying out for mercy. And they don't know. They don't know the nature of God. They just know this man covered in fish vomit, possibly. Maybe he took a bath. This man who has a word that stirs their hearts. The word of God carries an anointing that stirs up hearts of people. And it brings people to a place of decision. Will you godly sorrow and repent? Or will you have the sorrow of the world and remain the same? Verse 9, the king of Nineveh says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent, change his decision to judge and bring destruction? And turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Verse 10, God saw their works. God saw that they repented. He saw that they changed. So they turned from their evil way. And God relented or decided not to bring judgment, disaster on them. He didn't do it. He didn't bring the judgment that he was required to bring on them because he's just and holy. Why? Because they repented. They asked for forgiveness and they changed their ways because they had godly sorrow. That's what godly sorrow does. It, repro- it produces a change in your heart. It causes you to change. I was talking to a, 
precious man about some sin that he was dealing with in his life. And I told him, I said, look, here's the deal. Until you hate that sin, and if you keep treating it like a pet, you'll never get that sin out of your life. You're going to have to learn to hate that sin as much as God hates it. Because God hates sin. Sin destroys. Sin kills. And I told him, I said, until you hate that sin, you'll never get rid of it. As long as you put up with it and allow it to remain, you can be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he was being convicted. And thank God he finally did. But being convicted, being having your heart stirred, gives you the opportunity. Are you going to change? Or are you just going to have worldly sorrow? Now, what does worldly sorrow look like? 1 Samuel 15. We sing King Saul. He's the first king anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. Actually, the first king of Israel is Jehovah, God Almighty. Because he tells Samuel, when the people cry out for a king, Samuel kind of takes it as an insult because he's the prophet leading the nation as a judge. And God says, look, they didn't reject you, Samuel. They rejected me. They want a man to be king. They rejected God. Well, God gave them what they asked for, a king. They gave him Saul. Saul started out pretty good. In fact, when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, he prophesied to the point where the prophets of God said, Is Saul also a prophet? Filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed, prophesying. Yet when he goes to battle, as commanded by the Lord, against the Amalekites, because their sin had come to a point of judgment, the Amalekites had sinned to a place and entered into wickedness to a point to where it brought the judgment of God on them. And God told them, wipe out the Amalekites, everyone and all their stuff, all their livestock, herd, everything. Let nothing remain. Well, Saul goes and partly obeys. When he partly obeys, he leaves the king alive because that's what they did in that day and age. The conquering king would always take the king who lost and make him a slave and sometimes mutilate him or cut his thumbs and toes off and maim him and then let him basically be like a jester or a point of humiliation in the king's court. And that king who lost his lost the war and lost his nation and has been conquered would just be this point of humiliation that the other triumphant king could mock and make fun of and Whatever. Well, King Saul, maybe he had that same idea that he was going to do against King Agag. But nonetheless, he didn't do what God said, which was to kill him. Saul also spared all the best sheep and ox and livestock, even though God said to destroy it all, destroy everything. So when Samuel comes, when Saul commits that sin... 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Saul saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. 
Well, so Samuel confronts Saul, and he says, you know, when, when Samuel comes to meet Saul, Saul says, hey, praise the Lord, I've done everything that I was supposed to do. Verse 13, Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel immediately replies, if you did what God said, then why do I hear sheep bleeding and the lowing of ox? Why do I hear all these ox and sheep making noise, King Saul, if you did the word of the Lord? And Saul says, oh, well, I brought the absolute best, and we're going to offer it up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel said, you understand, when God picked you, you were little in your own eyes. And when God chose you, you were small, you were humble in your own eyes. But now you have sinned. You didn't obey the word of the Lord. And, and Samuel tells him, he said, look, here's the thing. You didn't kill this king as you were commanded to do, and you took some of the plunder, and you weren't supposed to do that. Verse 22, 1 Samuel 15, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does the Lord get more pleasure in obedience or some sacrifice? And he says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to the word of God is better than the fat of rams offered in sacrifice. Verse 23, for rebellion, disobedience to the Lord, is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness, refusing to submit and being stubborn, is the same as iniquity and idolatry. Because really when you're being stubborn and refuse to submit to the truth of God's word, Rather, and yield to your opinion. You've created your opinion. You've made your opinion into an idol. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. Notice what happens. Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. You know what? You're right. I did sin, Saul, uh, Samuel, prophet Samuel. I did sin. I didn't obey. I, I was afraid of the people. I listened to their voice instead of God's voice. But please forgive me so I can go back and bring sacrifice before the Lord. Now, it sounds good at face value, doesn't it? But his heart proved differently. Verse 26, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent, for he is not a man that he should relent, that he should lie. Verse 30, Then he said, I've sinned. Saul says this, Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Saul wasn't repentant. He wasn't repentful, if that's a word. He wasn't repentant. He wasn't sorry. He didn't change his ways. His heart wasn't impacted by godly sorrow. He had world, worldly sorrow. How do we know this? Because the only thing that Saul was concerned about was, look, I'm king, and I've got to be there 
when you do this sacrifice, and I need you to come do this so all the elders of Israel can see that I'm still okay to be king. And after all, Saul said it himself, he feared the voice of man more than the voice of God. See, there's a choice. Do you want God's approval or do you want the world's approval? Faith usually always comes down to that. Who are you going to believe? Whose report, Isaiah 53, 1, whose report will you believe? Because those that believe the report of the Lord, that's who the power of God is revealed to. And it's the same way in this concerning sorrow. When you're convicted, you have a choice. Will you be truly repentant and change? Or will you have worldly sorrow, which will produce bitterness, hard-heartedness, anger? Well, you just don't understand. Uh, uh, I can't change. I can't do that. No, I don't want to. I don't. I want to do this. I, I, uh, and you have that dilemma in your heart. And turn from the things of God? Or will you allow sorrow to work repentance in your heart? We need to always keep our heart soft before the Lord. The psalmist said, A broken and a contrite heart the Lord will not turn away. When our heart is broken and open, not, not broken in the sense of, defective or in need of healing, but very tender, extremely soft, pliable, open before the Lord. That's the heart that God can work with. Keep your heart soft before the Lord so that if there is a time where conviction comes and it produces sorrow, that it's godly sorrow which produces change. Hey, I'm so thankful that you listened today to today's wake-up call. I appreciate you always tuning in. Make sure you drop back in at the end of this week on Friday as we finish up Who Is This Jesus, the mini-series. It will be our seventh and last installment of that series, I Am the True Vine. So make sure you come check it out. We're going to go to John 15. It's going to be really, really good study. I'm thankful for you. I pray the Lord's blessing on you that you're continually growing stronger and stronger in the things of God and His Word and by His Spirit. And remember, we are the faithful. I'll see you next time. God bless. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Faith for My Generation podcast. Remember, every Monday I've got a brand new wake-up call for you. And every Thursday, I've got a brand new episode right here on Faith for My Generation podcast. And remember, we are the faithful.